Today on the show, we have Becky Varney. She talks about why she enjoys being in a creative field. It's incredibly rewarding to ha- to just make something, to just have an idea, and then you you work on it for a while, and then you put it up on a screen, and it's and then it's done, and it's real, and it started out as just a random dream that you had. As well, how to define your audience? We call it sw- swimmers, waders, divers. Is our, our concept of like? What's that mean? You go to a museum. Some people who are going to be waders, like they kind of just they just kind of walk around. They're there because their friends are there. <laughs> Whatever. There's just oh, there are always people that are like that. They're never really. They could be in front of the Mona Lisa. They're not really looking at it. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals. Everyone from producers and creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. The show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media, or AIM. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. Did you have an interest in film before college? Yeah, so I started video um, in high school. I wanted to be a fighter pilot at the time, and I was taking science and math. And then I had a random elective that I needed to fill. And I said, well, video production will be easy, and it will take no time away from my physics class, so I'll do that. And then... Like two months later or three months later, I started breaking into the school every night to edit films with my friends. And, you know, two years later, I was like, oh, I guess I should probably go to college for this because I clearly don't care that much about math and physics anymore. I aimed for communication and I aimed for creative storytelling. I knew what I wanted to do. George Mason was a pretty solid program. I knew they were still building, which I wasn't afraid of getting involved in something that was changing. And I kind of just went for it. Like I think a lot of like I think a lot of students do. They just go for it and see what happens. If you had a target in college, what would be your dream job? No, I think at the time I just wanted to do everything. So in high school, I was shooter. Honestly, I would usually date someone that was a writer. And then I would just do the camera, the lighting, the sound, the editing, get a bunch of friends together, try to organize things. And in college, it was much the same. I wanted to just get exposure to everything under the sun and uh, sort of just see where I couldn't help but progress. And then I was like, oh, well, if I like editing a lot, I'll do the editing thing. If I like the sound a lot, I'll just do the sound thing. When you first started at Arlington Independent Media, that's what I saw you as, as, a, as a person that would help out on any project and just bring up the level of, of play on any producer, whether it be a volunteer producer or staff production. And it, there wasn't this idea of you were producing your own program. It was that you were kind of running around helping everybody else yes. produce their own program. <laughs> that is exactly how I do it. So you were you were working in a lot of different roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to be one of those people that just feel I like to fill the gap, like whatever, wherever the void is, I'll just walk in and I'll be like, oh, there's no sound person here. Let me do this for you. I know a fair amount about you, so maybe it's partly to to do with all the video games that you've that you've played (laughs) growing up. (laughs) But but what was that attraction to, to editing? I think editing was the first place where I understood the process enough to say, no, this is the way it it should be done instead of just this is the way I was taught to do it. It's very easy to gauge when you're a good editor. Are you faster than everyone else? And does your story hold? So I was like, oh, great. I can beat everyone else and be fast and be a good editor. And then I'll get work. And Like a video game. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how can I score myself versus someone else in something that's supposed to be creative? I've been doing freelance for a while now. And I found that I was working these these odd jobs, just small projects where I would do the shooting, producing, editing. To reach a point where, you know, I started to make more money. the The jobs didn't change, the clients didn't change. It's that I got faster, and there is a cross section that meets where time versus knowledge 
and just mechanical skill actually starts paying off. Well, I guess <laughs> I'm getting good out. at this, yeah. And it, it is hard as you're learning to kind of actually have that gauge because you end up spending 10 hours working on some simple problem that, that a professional might just be able to you know, get it done, <laughs> get it done in, in 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. And I think too, when you're, when you're originally starting out, like if you're making a hundred dollars a day and you're editing and it's going to take you two weeks to cut a piece. So that person is going to spend, you know, 10 days, a hundred dollars a day, they're going to spend a thousand dollars on you. Why wouldn't they pay me a thousand dollars to do it in a day? <laughs> Cause that's how long it's going to take. Like why they're going to pay the same price, but they're going to get it basically rush job, but with no increase in cost. So as far as they're concerned, it's a win. Becky used to work at Arlington Independent Media. I still currently work at Arlington Independent Media, which is a, a public access channel that that helps facilitate members and, and producers taking classes and creating their own programs. But what I find interesting is that, that people will come through class and say, they take the field class and then it's like, okay, all I need to take is editing and then I'm set. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and it's these are six-week class, three-week class where you know you're just getting the basics and getting up and running. I don't think it's delusion. I think it is excitement. I think people are excited and they think they understand it. Professionally, there are those different markets, and you could probably speak to this too, where there's like the Craigslist market, or I talk to a lot of nonprofits that say, let's get a student to do this. And then there's like mid-tier, and then there's like high-end kind of productions, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, with which is what you're involved in now. So you worked at AIM for five years. What was your kind of perception of it, and what, what did you do? Well, I freelanced starting at 15, so I like got my first job three months after I took any kind of video class ever. When I was in college, I just got an email randomly from the director of my department saying, hey, Becky, are you uh, interested in doing some teaching stuff? You're doing pretty well in your classes, and I've, we, we've got another one of our instructors here who's looking for someone to teach classes at this at this public access center. And I was like, what the hell is public access? I don't know what that is. And then I'm like, I don't know if I have time for this. I don't know if I care enough to do it. And then I was like, well, you know, you just got to play it out and it's an opportunity. You just take it and you see where it goes. And I can always just bail on it down the road if I don't like it. And I came in, got a tour of the facility. And, and like Devin said, it's a public access station. So it was like there was a studio and there were edit bays. There was a bunch of field equipment and it was pretty legit field equipment. And there was staff who knew what the hell they were talking about. And then there were all these people running around just making stuff, just making stuff to make stuff. Nobody was getting paid and everybody was just doing it to be creative or to test out a theory or because they thought they had a good story. And it was like just a big creative energy. And I went through the interview and was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm totally down for this. And it it didn't pay great. It's nonprofit, but I didn't really care. And I didn't I didn't have a problem with it. And I started part time. And I stayed part-time, I think, for a year and a half, maybe two years. And then I went full-time for the rest of the five-year period. And it stayed the exact same thing. It was competent staff and cool new equipment and um, an outlet to be able to create stuff. And then a lot of incredibly energetic people making things all the time around you. And it was weird to me, and it still is weird to me, because there was no money. Like, there was no money. It was like I was constantly calling people to say, hey, do you want to come volunteer as a camera op? And people were like, hell yeah, I want to be a camera operator. And my mind was just blown because I was like, I know I'm getting paid. I know I'm not a lot, but I'm getting paid. Now, how are all these people in here doing it? But it was great. And you could see these people come in off the street, like out of high school, and they're barely, barely going to class. And this is something that they just kind of like and their parent takes them here and is like, please, dear God, let this be the thing that my teenager grips onto. And they start focusing on something 
and they do and they do great and then you know within two years they're they're freelancing as a steady cam operator it's crazy it's crazy it's funny the story i always tell is i remember the one time i was late for work and the metro was there was some marathon going on or something it reached a point where i just had to jump in a cab because i had to open the facility and i don't live that far i was 15 minutes away I jumped in a cab and we're riding and we we show up at, in the front and we park and he's like, what is this place? And like <laughs> looking at it from outside and I said, uh, you know, I started explaining it's a public access channel and we have classes and he's like, oh yeah? And the cab driver gets out, comes in and signs up for membership in a couple classes. That is dropping me off. I've sent people, I've, that's funny that you say that because I've had a number of times where I get picked up from the airport and I'm like, you know, it's like five in the morning and I look all disheveled and the cab driver's like, so where are you coming in from? And I'm like, oh, I'm just back from working with the 49ers. Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a filmmaker. Oh, I've been thinking about being a filmmaker too. And I just tell him about Arlington Independent Media. I write the website down on my card. I hand it to him and I get out. Nice. Yeah, it is a great, great resource. Can you talk a little bit about your pet projects and or even projects that you did outside of AIM and connection to AIM? If you asked most of the people that I made indie stuff with, they would say I never did a single project that was mine because I never wrote anything. I always just kind of hopped into a group and made stuff. But, um, you know, Anthony Green and I made tons of stuff while we were here. And usually we would co-produce. So he would come up with the script. And if I liked it, he would say, well, great, let's produce it together. And then we would go out and find a bunch of staff and pull people together and make it happen. And definitely this is a great place for that because – if I'm sitting there at my desk on on the clock and editing a film that's something that I just want to edit because it's a cool story, and then I've got a bunch of people that are members of Arlington Independent Media that are engaged and care about the story too, and they're stopping in to see scenes, and then we end up talking about editing theory, and then they're asking if they can take a look at all the outtakes, and we're critiquing how the lighting was terrible in that one scene because our normal gaffer was out that day or how the sound in this other scene turned out awesome when it was really the camera assist that ended up becoming the sound technician. I did a lot of them. I did a lot of random, weird, independent film pieces. And sometimes now when I try to look back on how many things that I was involved in here, it blows my mind. I think I made more here than I do now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that happens. But I think it's just because everybody's running around make, making stuff go. The stories, nev- the exact script never mattered that much to me. It was like, was it cool enough? Okay, great. Let's get a bunch of people together and test our skills and see if we can make this thing go, you know, if we can get a piece at the end of it. And that's what I say to people first starting off. And there's there's every kind of producer that walks through the door um, that has a really specific idea of what they want to do. And some people that start off just wanting to volunteer and then end up producing something five years down the road. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, use this space as its design, which is a test kitchen, mm-hmm. which you come in, you, you, you can have a half-baked idea. No one's going to tell you you can't do it. And, you know, just learn from it and see see how to how to build from that now working in a corp- more corporate environment do you ever miss doing those types of projects or have any projects of your own that you would like to do so working in the corporate environment that I'm in now I don't even have any energy left at the end of the day to be creative I'm done I'm completely shot I'm just like I want game of thrones and a bottle of wine like that's it that's all I've got left <laughs> But I have had a couple of um, discussions with my company about my job and my role there and whether or not I think it should be more creative or should be more management or 
what do I want? And they keep saying that's their question to me is constantly, what do you well, what do you want? Do you want to be creative or do you want to run things? And I'm like, I don't know still. I have no idea. I want to make stuff just because I want to make it. I want to not always have somebody just paying me. I don't want to I don't want to be working for the Republican or the Democratic Party and know that I am totally just telling one side of the damn story because they're the ones that are writing the check and paying my rent or whatever it is. It's like it's a uh, it's incredibly rewarding to ha- to just make something, to just have an idea and then you you work on it for a while and then you put it up on a screen and it's and then it's done and it's real and it started out as just a random dream that you had. I would love to do that more. I don't know how the hell people do it. So now that I'm not working at AIM, I'm like, how do these other people with these full-time jobs like find the time and the energy to volunteer? I think it's amazing. We're getting to talk a little bit about your current gig, which is Cortina Productions. I can give you the, the elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Uh, it's a media design and production firm in McLean, Virginia. So basically what we do is installation-based media for museums, sports hall of fames, cultural institutions, um, any anybody who wants to pay us. And we do uh, anything that would be considered media. So sometimes it's print design. Usually it's uh, software development for interactive kiosks or web-based platforms, or it's films, or it's audioscapes, or mobile apps, or whatever. Whatever kooky idea that people are willing to come. Holograms, connect games, augmented reality experiences, scavenger hunts on tablets with object recognition stuff, whatever. You started off, I know, as a production assistant full-time there, Mm -hmm. and then we've been dancing around how you play all these different roles in all these different projects. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about how it evolved over the last couple years? Sure. So I I left Arlington Independent Media just about four years ago, a little under four years ago, and I took a demotion and I took a pay cut and I became a production assistant and just said, I want to do this at one of these like high-end media production facilities and just see how I do. And then I'm really like a PA that is organizing media and keeping track of assets and licensing information for a couple presidential libraries and writing a script here or there. And then, you know, an editor walks by and I'm like, yo, Nick, what's going on? So can I talk to you real quick about how you guys do your workflow in Final Cut Pro? And he's like, you know the term workflow? You're a PA. Like PAs don't know anything. And I'm like, I know a, no, I know a little bit about editing. I've been doing it for like eight years. And then, and then like a conversation evolves out of that. And then three days later, they're like, hey, we've got uh, an audio tour we need cut for the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. We're going to need you to just do it. And I'm like, OK, cool. And then I get the files and I'm like, wait, this is in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. And they're like, just read the script. You're fine. So, <laughs> so uh, then I think maybe three months or four months later, they gave me a film, which was a multi-screen film. It's really uncommon for us to produce like one screen anything. And then I hung out for like three weeks in an edit bay with a bunch of nature stuff and spacey music and just made an art film, which was awesome. And they were like, holy crap, we love it. You're awesome. You can edit all the time now. And I was like, wait, I didn't, I'm not in the editing department. I don't know if I want to do editing. And they threw me in and they had me write and edit. They decided that they wanted me to produce more because I started like doing what I do, which is I was like, well, the editors don't have a manager. They have no one that's helping them organize things on a a higher level or talk about workflow or coordinate things with other departments and I just started doing all of that so they were like well come back over to producing and manage people and then so put me on bigger projects and bigger projects and bigger projects and what was it like writing and editing so you were basically a predator you were you were pr- producing yeah. and editing yeah some clients like know exactly what they want right 
they've basically written script frame by frame for everything that you need to deliver. A button pusher at that yeah. point. And yeah. If, <laughs> and if you don't deliver exactly what they imagined in their mind, you're totally screwed because you're never going to get that damn final paycheck and move on with your life. Mm-hmm. It's like a terrible breakup that just will not end. But <laughs> then some clients are amazing. Some clients are really will provide you just a wealth of material. So I worked for the Kennedy Space Center and they're a bunch of scientists and I'm like, oh man, these guys are going to be really, really nitpicky and this is going to be kind of a crazy project. And then they said, how would you like to have access to everything NASA has ever made and just get locked in an edit bay for four months and then any song you want, we don't care. You have a 30 foot screen, just make the Hubble telescope look cool. And I was like, oh my God. So I spent months just watching Carl Sagan and cutting space footage. Like, that's like a dream world. And I never wrote a paper script ever. I just cut and watched it on a big screen. And I wonder how much at your facility, how important that paper edit is up front for making these big projects work. It is huge. So how much goes into how much time goes into? And I know a lot of projects are different, but to get something that that's going to work. Um, and and deliver what the client wants, how much work gets into that just first script? Well, I can tell you, so most of our museums will have like a 10 to 20 minute film. When you you pay, get a ticket, you go into what we call a signature theater and you sit down and you watch a 10 to 20 minute film that's about your topic. Um, And most of those films will have a producer that over the duration of that one film has something in the neighborhood of 320 hours to produce it. So that includes script writing, any asset acquisition they have to do. Most of that will get piped down to a PA or a production coordinator or somebody else. Hanging out with the editors, managing the client, keeping the budget on track, any original shooting that has to happen, that sort of thing too. So you're probably looking at about a three-week time where they do nothing but paper scripts. And I think you know this. We're kind of in a transition period now where a lot of our older producers, producers that did things the way that producers used to do things, like cling to that paper script for for dear life, and I'm like, well, let me just show you Premiere. It's really easy. You you benefit from this. It's you don't have to wait till you're in an edit bay to hear if those two sound bites work together. You can just put them together and see if it feels good. But those guys are paper script for eternity, and they write very detailed notes. So it's down to the frame on on pretty much everything. And then they'll leave wiggle room, right? Like they'll say, we want, I want B roll of cool space stuff here. Or, you know, I need a couple close-up of kids waving American flags there. but they'll And they'll let the editors explore with that, but they really hand them a paper script. And then there are new producers, like what I do and what everyone underneath of me at Cortina that we're training them to do is make sure that they can write a paper script and it's good to deliver that to your client because they can mark it up and it's easier to talk about, oh, well, let's go to block six. Ah, is that the right quote? But it's a lot easier for everybody if when you get into an edit, You've already got a string out. You've got something laid down on a timeline, and you already know basically how does it move and how does it flow and and if it's working. I'm never going to write a paper script. I'm like, good luck, guys. It's never going to freaking happen. I'll pay somebody else to conform a script after I'm done, but I'm never going to write a paper script. I just don't see a point. You have to have something. You have to have some sort of vision on paper, and it could just be an outline or you know a series of ideas or something, because otherwise you you leave it up to the interpretation of everyone involved. I do some some documentary pet projects on the side with three film partners, you know, and and no script. Literally, by nature, everyone is making their own film in their head. At least having a style sheet or some sort of (laughs) way to start, uh, vision statement, whatever it is, it just makes things really difficult. And you just, you 
you deal with it throughout the whole process. Yeah, so we do an exercise that we get client approval on called an experience summary because we do software and film and sound and everything. And that's really where we try to say these are our learning objectives. It's usually There's usually some sort of learning goal if it's in a museum. And then we'll say these are our technological objectives. And usually everybody's trying to push the technological boundaries a little bit. Like, oh, we're doing, you know, all augmented reality. Everything is augmented reality in our museum. So we have to find ways to integrate augmented reality or we're doing all mobile or whatever it is. So we'll have our experience summary. We'll lay out all these tech, technological goals, these exper- uh, educational goals. And then we'll kind of lay out the roadmap that says, um, you know, this is our thesis statement and this is our basic argument. So if it's like a three-act film, we'll lay out what those three acts are and start to suggest the types of people that we would want to talk to or pull footage from or um, what are the places where we see ourselves going out to gather footage. And we'll get the we'll get the client to sign off there because if we don't have that especially when you're pay- you're being paid, right? Like you're re- then you're really talking about you've got to be making the same thing that your client expects to see. You can't burn 200 hours on a script and then the client is like what the hell is this? I don't, I don't even know what this means. How much are you working with clients that have never done something like this before? All the time. So usually it's it usually they're relatively new to it. And then at this point every client I've had stays around and does new work every single year. So we spend the first three months building a process and do weekly meetings and check-ins and I'll explain, okay, well, first we're going to do this and we're only looking for this kind of feedback now. And okay, now we're moving into fine cut. So now you can say, well, I don't like that one photo, but we don't need that in rough cut. And rough cut, let's just get the core of it going. It is daunting. You really have to trust the person that's kind of guiding you through that process. There is an insane amount of trust. People's tastes are really different. My taste is two degrees off of the person sitting next to me, even though we agree on on all of our favorite movies. And and when you get to that down to that granular level, you can have all out arguments about a, a text element. Yes, right? you can. I've had many uh, late night tight deadline arguments in the office where we're just like throwing down because my editor and I will disagree, and I'll have to be like reminding them. I want you to know, dude, I spend five hours on the phone with this client every single week for a year. I know what they want. I know what they want. And he's like, well, I know what the film wants. I know what the film needs. And I think that's kind of normal. I hear that that's a, also a mark of, of a younger editor or a younger producer is that they they fight for things. And they're probably right on, <laughs> on a certain level. But then what the older producer, the older editor realizes is that actually the client probably knows better what they need, what they want, you well, know, usually, for, for their own purposes, right? Usually they do. It's for them, <laughs> in, especially in our instance, because usually they're subject matter experts. So no amount of me learning about the 49ers is going to equate to a lifelong like fanatic, you know, like they love their team. They know everything about everything. I don't even bother to like come up with the idea anymore. I'm just like, Jesse, what do you think? You tell me, what do you want? What is it like working with the 49ers? How, how much do you work with them and what, what's that like? Well, I worked for them full time for two years and then now I do probably two days a week for the year since the museum opened. And um, based on every conversation we have, I'll probably continue to do at least two days a week for the foreseeable future. So um, I think they're a great organization. It's kind of w- was a weird thing for me starting sports because I don't watch football at all. I grew up in doing other sports and not really caring that much about watching sports. So I got assigned to a job where I was like, oh, crap. Now I got to hang out with a bunch of sport like jocks. And 
But then I really loved it. And I loved the, gr- the group of people that I was working with, the client team. And our culture at my office and the culture at the 49ers, uh, despite their current performance on the field, they're actually very um, – they're very good at what they do and they're very passionate and they really are they're understanding and they're creative and they're driven and it's it's been an incredible experience working for them it's been a little bit challenging over the last year because every time i blink we have to remove a player from a bunch of media but before that it was awesome and i'm i'm sure they'll have do really good in the draft and come back on top again what are you looking for for somebody to come in with little to no experience I hire a lot of people, and I can tell you the number one thing that I look for is um, do you know how to look me in the eye and talk to me like an adult is, is really the key element. And I know that your resume is what gets you to the point where I look you in the eye, but I need you to be able to show up. I need you to show up five or ten minutes early. I need you to have clothes that fit, and I need you to sit down at a table and have an adult conversation with me. And literally, that is it. That's all I'm looking for. I can teach you how to do anything that you're going to do. I mean, the training part, that's that's easy. The attitude of we're equal and we're on a team now and I and we've got to come to the same table every morning and solve problems together. That's the hard part. And, and people who come in wanting you to manage everything that they're doing and they always want to ask for direction and they always want you to like, what do I do next? What do I do next? I, that's very hard because then you've got you've to be thinking about what they're doing all day on top of everything that you're doing all day and on top of everything that the other 20 people that you're working with are doing all day. And then someone who just goes rogue and does whatever the hell they want and never tells you anything's ready, like that's really hard to deal with too. So, What's your dream production assistant? They walk <laughs> in, they, they do what? I can tell you my dream production assistant. This happened recently. We hired this guy, Alex. He's fresh out of college. He's like 24, maybe 23. And he's got a little bow tie on every day. And he wears like, you know, slim fit jeans and these tight little like express shirts and a little a little blazer every single day. He looks sharper than me every single day. And and he's in working at his computer. He gets in at seven in the morning. We don't our first hours like we start at eight everybody starts between eight and ten you can pick your end time he's in at seven every morning and he's working and sam who was my old pa who's now been promoted to a project manager and he's doing really well alex works for sam so i'm like in the in in the kitchen getting coffee and that's right by alex's desk and sam goes hey alex where are we at with the uh, data acquisition on av 1.1 and alex goes oh let me pull up my spreadsheet 27.3 percent complete and I'm like, that's my dream. That's what I want. I want someone who can give me a report like exactly where are you at any time and doesn't have to like stop and think about it and reassess. It's like you have a job, you have a role, know your role. And you don't have to know anything else about the whole rest of the project when you're a PA. You get to just ace the hell out of that thing, that thing that is yours. And he does that. That kid knows exactly where he's at at all times. And it's a dream. I don't think you have to be quite as anal as him, but I like that. That's that's what I want. I want. I want everyone on my team to be obsessive and obnoxious with over information. That's that seems that seems like a very specific. I know. Need. That's okay. That's all right. That's my dream. You're, though. you're upfront about it. Yeah, so that's I know what fine. I want. I know yeah. exactly what I'm looking for. Literally, it is like look me in the eye, shake my damn hand, sit down at the table, and have a conversation with me. You do it. You do it with your friends. I know you can do it. I'm not intimidating. I'm five four. I'm 120 pounds. Like. What the hell are you so scared of? I'm wearing jeans and probably sneakers. Like it's like not, it's not a stressful thing. I think I think when I was young, I get I would get so anxious. You were nervous socially when you were younger. 
Oh, my God. Yeah, I was, like, crazy shy. I couldn't even, like, I was that kid, a parent-teacher, like, meeting days. I'd hide behind my dad's leg. I was like, please do not make me talk to people or meet people or play with other kids. So what cha- what changed? How, or how, how did that change? In our field, like, you have to talk to people. You have to talk to people. You better damn well be able to go out there and get in a room full of people and talk to them, especially when you go the producing route because, like, we go into rooms and we say, hey, I'm going to need a million dollars for that. Like, you better <laughs> make eye contact and have an understanding of when it's reasonable to ask for a million dollars. And then after work, you can have beers with your friends and talk about how terrifying it was. It totally threw me when I started seeing what it really costs, what it really, really costs to pay professionals to do what professionals do, which is different than people volunteering. And there's a space for both. One of the things I run into a lot is budgets are so tight and you're trying to make your day rates and everything else and and trying to, to make it make sense for the client as well. But I do try and work with them on building the idea up first. You make a video for a food bank. You have you have people donating money or food. Mm-hmm. You have volunteers. You have the people that you're actually serving. And then you have foundations that might be giving you money. Who are you actually putting this video towards? Yeah. Which one of those groups? The chance that, that that organization has to make a video, they want to make the biggest and best and, and all-encompassing video possible. It's for everyone. We call it sw- swimmers, waiters, divers is our, our concept of like... What's that mean? You go to a museum with a group of people there are some people who are going to be waiters like they kind of just they just kind of walk around and look at shit they're there because their friends are there (laughs) whatever there's just there are always people that are like that they're never really they could be in front of the mona lisa they're not really looking at it and then swimmers swimmers are the ones who are going to read a few plaques and like really look at the art or or they want to experience it they they really it's cool it's cool right we're in a museum this is neat and then there are divers where it's you're dragging them out. You're like, no, I'm starving. Like, we are leaving the freaking museum. Like, I'm done. Get off of that plaque, Dad. We're, it's over. It's over. And we, we try to accommodate all three. Like, for the 49ers Museum, for instance, it's like, clearly, sports fanatic. They're going to be a diver. They are going. We have nine and a half hours of finished video content in that museum. We have 14 pieces of software, which are all incredibly robust databases on the entire history of that team. You could go back and spend about 30 hours and still find new content in just the media, not even talking about any of the artifacts or the other stuff that's inside of that museum. It's insane. The divers are taken care of. The waiters, the people who don't really care that much about sports and just got dragged along by their boyfriend or their wife or whatever, they're not so much taken care of in that one. I think they kind of can have some fun on a couple games, but... They're just kind of stuck waiting for their diver significant other to get through everything they want. You could probably translate that analogy to a lot of different aspects of life. (laughs) I think you really can. I've noticed it more and more as I walk around through everyday life. What should college students be doing in college if they're a sophomore, junior, to kind of prep themselves to get into that field? We call you a PA, but all a PA means is your intro level for whatever the hell is convenient on that set. So if I'm lacking a line producer and I've got a PA that's good at communicating with various departments, they basically are going to be my line producer on set. They're just called a PA because they're entry level. So I'd say go out and learn how it actually works. Like just get on sets. The first shoot I went on with my boss, I was like, it was like 100 degrees outside and I was pregnant and it was my first shoot with my boss. And I'm like, we're going into freaking swamp all day. I'm like totally going to be screwed. I'm not going to perform. And then like halfway through the day, I've like chilled out a little bit and I'm talking to my camera operator like, could you pan a little to the right and follow rule of thirds a little bit and then my boss is just like cracking up behind me it took a while though for me to just be like i know what i'm doing i'm completely talking it off the cuff but what i project is that a lot of 
bigger companies or mid-sized companies are going to be hiring these media professionals, and they're not necessarily videographers, but they have some sort of IT or social media expertise along with the video. Would you agree with that? I mean, definitely. And and also, you got to think that's basically what my company does, right? It's like we have a bunch of companies that contact us to do their media. So the 49ers Museum, I do the media. I just do the media. Everything media related that comes up, they call me. They call me on my cell, on my days off. They call, like, it, they call me. I'm the person. Like my 401k is going to be based completely off of how much media the 49ers decide to do. As we said before, it's the technology changes, but the the art form stays the same. Do you think that there's going to be, you know, with everything kind of moving to social media, there's these Vine celebrities, right, Mm -hmm. that use their phone to kind of create and talk to whole audiences of people. Reaching an audience is the most important thing, which kind of should be. You build that audience and then are you able then to deliver the messages that you want to through those, through these personalities or these individuals? The more media there is, the less time I have for every piece that I watch. So it makes sense to me why Vine videos and stuff like that are so popular. Because I can hop on Instagram while I'm walking between meetings and laugh at some girl who's doing a cheerleading routine on her bed and falls off and like falls out her window somehow. It's 30 seconds long or less. I can see it between meetings. It gives me a little mental break from work in a way that I wouldn't otherwise get. And I don't have enough free time to actually watch television. So it works for me. If you've got a message, if you've really got something that you're trying to say, you've got to build something that really is going to get someone like me to watch. And that means it better be damn good production quality and a damn good story. And you better get it out on a platform I'm already on because I'm not going to go find you. There's too much other stuff out there. Any other final thoughts? If this is going to be for young people that are trying to get out there and go make something, you should love the work you do in college because you're not going to get to do what you love forever. But you should also accept the fact that a regular professional at a corporate facility that produces video does not care all that much about your YouTube video. So create it because you like it and enjoy the process and get good at what you do. But realize that that end product is not the thing that's going to land you the job. Looking people in the eye and having a real conversation will. That's awesome. Thank you. (laughs) The show was recorded at Arlington Independent Media. You can find more episodes on WERA.FM. Or find us on iTunes. This has been Media on the Radio. Thanks for listening.